You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Because of his miraculous throat construction, he was able to create a rhapsody of hysteria. He described himself on first hearing him as being intoxicated and feeling that all can be changed. He responds to the vibration of the human heart with a delicacy of a sesmiograph, enabling him, with a certainty with which no conscious gift could endow him, to act as a loudspeaker, proclaiming the most secret desires, the least permissible instincts, the sufferings and personal revolts of a whole nation. Tim Wu is an author, policy advocate, and professor at Columbia University, best known for coining the term net neutrality. In 2006, Scientific American named him one of 50 leaders in science and technology. In 2013, the National Law Journal included him in America's 100 Most Influential Lawyers. He formerly wrote for Slate, where he won the Lowell Thomas Gold Medal for Travel Journalism and is a contributing writer for The New Yorker. He's the author of Who Controls the Internet, Illusions of a Borderless World, and The Master Switch, The Rise and Fall of Information Empires. His new book is The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Wu. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. The Attention Merchants... This is not this is not uh, an old phenomenon. This is pretty new what you say. These people have not been around us this idea of harvesting human attention. It first came to light in the the first newspapers in New York. Tell us about the New York Sun. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, writing this book, I went searching for the the source of the Nile, so to speak. When did <laughs> this business model begin where you gather up a crowd and resell them to advertisers? You know, it's so so commonplace in our times. It was the New York Sun, August 1833. Uh, Benjamin Day was the the first attention merchant. Uh, He had the idea that he could make a newspaper much more interesting by covering crime and slavery and other topics, and much cheaper, sell the papers at a loss, and then from the advertising revenue, you know, the big crowds by getting a large uh, subscription, not subscription, a large audience, resell the crowds, make money that way. So that business model, when it was invented, I think had a very profound effect on everything. I, you know, today, whether it's Facebook, Google, these, uh, the media, they're all driven by the advertising model. But it was invented at that very moment. And, and while we think of it as just the tool of advertising, it actually didn't get its start necessarily. Um, it's big, big blow up it wasn't in advertising as much as in propaganda. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that that's one of the the really fascinating aspects to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, you know, I think we sometimes think, oh, there's always been advertising. Of course there is. But modern advertising, as we think of it, trying to persuade, manipulate, um, influence, uh, didn't really get started until about the 1910s, 1920s, as we see it today. And I think one reason was that businesses didn't really believe it worked. It was once a very niche thing to advertise. <laughs> businesses still kind of doubt that it yeah, works. Yeah, that's, right? that's yeah. still around today with yeah. that, does web advertising work? Oh, no, it doesn't. Yes, yeah. it does. No, no, it doesn't. It was all, it's always been a question <laughs> for advertising. But um, 
the proof of concept, so to speak, was provided by the British government in the First World War. Uh, the British government had a problem of uh, not having an army <laughs> and having declared war on the German Empire with four million soldiers, so they needed to put together an army, and their answer, uh, conscription being barred by tradition, was to turn to advertising or, or propaganda. In, in those days, the word propaganda advertising, we didn't differentiate between them. And they blanketed the entire country with posters and, uh, and rallies and managed to get millions of people to sign up for something at the time where you were about 50-50 chance of getting killed or, or maimed. But they did it. And after that, um, and with the success and the development and the scale of advertising, business said, all right, this stuff works, and advertising really got started. I think that one of the key concepts of your book is the idea of the bargain that's mm. been made right. between the advertiser and the consumer and and the and the the per, the broadcaster. This is a kind of a three part bargain that's unwritten and it's been changed consistently over time. No, that's right. I think a lot of our life uh, we're kind of in a in a covenant <laughs> without even uh, and I don't know. I think we know it and we don't know it. So. You know, go you go through your life. You you have all this sort of free stuff around, free searches. You know, maps. Uh, you see your friends on Facebook. You watch free television, uh, or maybe you pay a little bit, but some of it's free. And then you watch uh, for that advertisements uh, of some quantity. It's really hard to know how much you're taking. It's not like there's a price tag, you know, but you know you're going to watch some ads to like watch football on Sunday or something, or you know, um, being on Facebooks means telling Facebook an awful lot about yourself and, and your family. Um, and so there we go. You know, we're in this deal. And I, as you said, I, I think it really informs, it's one of the more important covenants of our, of our times, determining how we live. In exchange for free stuff, we open ourselves up to influence and access to our minds. That's our deal. And that's a big deal. <laughs> that's not just like uh, looking at advertising. That's a behavior modification, and I think that's something that we really need to understand every time we make that deal, every time we click on a privacy agreement, every time we go to a website, we are consenting to have our behavior modified. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're opening ourselves up to influence because you can only be influenced if someone has access to your mind. Mm -hmm. And what you do when you, when you agree you know, to, to use free, you know, sort of the free stuff is you're agreeing to have some part of yourself opened up, as you said, to, to influence you, to pay attention to ads or other tools that are designed to steer you in, in various ways. I mean, it makes it sound sinister. It is a little sinister, but in exchange, we get a lot of free stuff. So, you know, that that's our deal. One of the reasons I wrote this book was not so much to condemn it, although some people might want to think hard about these kind of uh, deals we make, but also just to know the deal is on. Mm -hmm. you know, to, to, these are the terms. You know, we are opening ourselves up to, to as you said, behavioral modification. I, I think, too, that it's important to understand um, this idea of paying attention because we have this idea that we're always paying attention, we're taking in all this data we are, but actually the human mind is spend most of its time not taking stuff in, mm. but filtering stuff out. So talk about what paying attention is and how we understand it. Yes. No, it's a, a, a very important point to understand. Um, our most magnificent uh, power as humans, I think, one of the most magnificent powers we have is to ignore things. We ignore almost everything in our environment, even though our brains are being bombarded 
uh, with signals, and uh, I don't only mean your eyes, your senses, all of your, you know, uh, all of your senses are constantly bringing in information, and we have this ability to take one tiny stream and focus on that, you know. So, you know, maybe you're driving a car right now, but you're focused on the voice, sort of ambiently focused on other things as well. Um, so that has an enormous role in our lives for because for whatever gets our attention is really in a in a real way getting access to our minds and most things don't and therefore attention is incredibly valuable it's also valuable because you only have a limited amount of it 168 hours a week is all we have and uh, therefore as as i think other things in our society become scarce attention on the last sorry as other things in our society become abundant like food and shelter attention becomes one of the last scarce commodities and that's something that like land they are not making any more of it <laughs> right I, you know no matter who you are you've only got 168 hours a week 24 hours a day you can't expand it somehow it's unless you unless we're talking about science fiction somehow but <laughs> that's it and um i also think uh it's worth thinking about how you spend your attention and we say pay attention but you can think of it as spending Mm-hmm. If you think of it as like a valuable resource. Yeah. I, I like that idea of spending attention. I think that that makes more. I mean, I guess and it's even built into the idea of paying attention. Right. But right. when you say spending attention, it makes it a little bit more clearer exactly that there's a, an economic aspect to this deal. Yeah, that's right. You know, I spend a little attention on this in, in exchange for that. Um, I, I think that's what we really are doing um, a lot of our time. We're spending our attention here, there and, and everywhere. Uh, now, attention's a little different than money because you have to spend it continuously. <laughs> You're always paying attention <laughs> to something, and you can't store it. Uh, it would be nice if you could just put it in the bank somewhere. And just, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you would do that. Now we're talking like science fiction. It's uh, like I, I stored up like hours of my attention because I wanted to, I don't know, um, I, I, we're you in know, a Philip pay K. Dick novel. Family. I know, I know. It's sort of like that. And I draw on it like, oh, I need the extra attention this week. It's a really busy week. I want like 400 hours this week. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I could have used some extra attention time this week. Uh, you write um, that, that there was a major um, dynam- recurrent dynamic that shaped the course of the attention industries, which you call the revolt. Yes. So what do you mean by that revolt? What was Who was revolting against what? Right. So the advertising industry and, and the attention merchants, so the platforms for advertising and the ads themselves, as we've said, are you know, reaching into people's minds to be effective. They have to mm-hmm. reach. And uh, they have uh, the tendency to overreach. You know, capitalism has no natural boundaries. It keeps growing and growing. And at some point, um, people over history, uh, it, it goes too far, and either people start ignoring things, you know, they, the, the ads don't work anymore, they just become immune to them, but if, they, if it gets really extreme, there will be, uh, among consumers or among the people, one or another version of a revolt where people begin saying they've had it, more, more radically tuning out, calling for government uh, regulation, uh, boycotts, uh, ad blocking in our current time, cord cutting—just more violent, more violent forms of, of reaction to advertising. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's—I think it's something deep within us. What 
uh, some reflex of self-preservation says, this is too much. I'm losing control over who I am, and I've had it. And we, you know, people don't say that. They say something more like advertising is just too annoying, or, or, you know. I'm mad far. as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> too intrusive. <laughs> Everyone has their tipping point, uh-huh. you know. Uh, for me, it, maybe when I was reading about advertising in public schools, for example, that might have been my tipping point. That's I, was that's a disturbing uh, trend, and that's what begins the book. That's where we start. Yes, I know. I was looking at all these pictures of schools, and uh, there's schools in poor districts where the entire hallway is lined with advertisements. The lockers are all plastered over with ads. And then they have these enormous screens, which which uh, run advertisements mixed with um, school announcements, and it just seemed to be so dystopic. You know, this is because <laughs> children, you know, first of all, are incredibly vulnerable mm. to, to influence. Oh, uh, sure. You know, they're they're hard to get children to pay attention, but when they pay attention, it's very deep. Mm-hmm. And they're also a captive audience; like they have to go to school. So there's something about. You know, advertising. I mean, we we do educate children, which is, of course, a form of propaganda. But to advertise to children while they're at school just struck me as that was the bridge too far, and I was ready to storm the battlements <laughs> on that one. Uh, and this whole trend, another uh, great figure in this book. One of the things you do in this book really well is to craft characters, and there's this amazing story arc in this book. It's compelling and page turning. We can't wait to find out what crazy things somebody's going to do next. And one of the craziest guys out there, and one of my favorite characters, was Claude Hopkins. Oh, yeah. I loved that Claude Hopkins. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. He's yeah. such an unusual figure, but has such an influence over how he lived. So Claude Hopkins was the first of the great copywriters. For people who know the show uh, Mad Men, he was like the early version of Don Draper, except for he was a lot different looking. He was... Uh, a weird-looking guy. He had a strong lisp. He always wore a flower in his uh, in his jacket. Um, and his history uh, is very interesting and actually tells us a lot about advertising. He was originally a Baptist priest. As a teenager, he was a Baptist uh, preacher, and he thought he'd make his life as a clergyman. Um, but then he had some strange fit and rejected the church. He gave a last heretical sermon which rejected the story of Jonah and the whale and of of eternal damnation and various other doctrines. He couldn't stand it. He decided he had to have a life with a little more excitement, and he went into advertising. And it's not very hard to see how he imports the methods of advertising into the sell of products. Uh, He's selling patent medicine, you know, miracle cures. That's what his business is to begin with. Um, He says at one point, um, because the cures didn't actually work, it put the advertising man to the test. <laughs> you know, advertising had to do it all when it came to medicine. It's not that big a leap from miracles to miracle cures, eh? Right. Well, one thing you realize, um, the book also includes some of the early snake, actual snake oil salesmen. I love the snake oil guy. He yeah. was he was really there. There really was a snake oil. <laughs> yeah, Clark, Clark Stanley. Uh, so these guys, um, a lot of the birth of advertising centers in the sale of these quack medicines because... You know, the medicines didn't work, <laughs> right? So the meth- it, they had to be brilliant advertisers to get people to take them. And they had to get a deep understanding of a technique which recurs over and over, which is that very—I'll uh, I, I, describe three stages that mm-hmm. you see throughout this book. The first is getting attention at all, you know, being outlandish or crazy or something about you that people just notice. 
you know, the Rattlesnake King, the, the sorry, Clark Stanley, the snake oil guy, he would appear in public with like snakes all over him, you know, crawling on him. <laughs> he's like, I don't care. And people are like, oh my God, what's that? So, you know, right away you're interested. Uh-huh. The, and, and, you know, pictures, miracle ingredients, something like that. And then this is something Cloud Hopkins was very good at. He would then deeply try to understand the deeply held fears or desires that were most important to the person. You know, in medicine, it was often a fear of death or of sickness or a a desire to be free of chronic pain. And then finally, to offer yourself as the answer, as the solution, to give people what they want. I have what you need, a lot of the early patent medicine says. Every other doctor has failed you, but now here's me. And um, you'll later see this reflected in in politics uh, um, throughout the 20th century. But in early advertising, that idea of detecting almost uncontrollably what people want, so desperately need, and then offering your answer becomes a very powerful tool. It's not completely unlike religious uh, promises, especially mm-hmm. in Cloud Hopkins' hands. There's you know, the sense of suffering in this life and a deliverance to another life. You know, here is the answer to your problems. I like that idea, too, that you mentioned, the conjoining of fears and desires, because those two kind of dissolve into one another. Yes. The most successful, and not every ad is this successful, but the most successful really put those together. Another ad, early ad that I like that does this very well um, is an ad targeting women in the 1920s uh, uh, for Listerine, which was originally a, a floor cleaner. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's a, that right there, I'm already scared. The, the advertisement, well, you know, they had new management. Okay, what are we going to do with this stuff? And um, they came up with this idea of targeting women and particularly the fear that they sensed of uh, becoming an old maid uh, or of not finding a husband, uh, the desire to uh, be wed. And so they came up with a campaign, uh, often a bridesmaid, never a bride, which was focused on poor Edna, a girl who was as charming and beautiful as any of her peers, but, and no one would tell her this, had bad breath. Mm. So uh, heliotosis, invented the scientific word, so she had bad breath, and so uh, no one, but no one would tell her because uh, it just wasn't the thing to do. Answer, Listerine. So you're afraid of not getting married? Listerine is your answer. I guess so. Uh, I, I think that uh, for me, too, that the the sweep of this book in terms of the way you move us from politics to commerce um, is is really interesting. When you were putting this book together, uh, did you have to have like um, spreadsheets? And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this book, yet it's concise. And as I say, something of a page turner. Uh, you know, it, it's challenging to write a book that covers 200 years of history and also um, uh, such a broad topic as attention. Uh, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I focused it on the, the business model of the attention merchant as opposed to everything we pay attention to because then it's just like a sprawling mess of a of a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, it took four years, I guess, of time <laughs> to, to put it together. There's a lot. It's not in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this book is about 100,000 words, and I probably wrote 200,000 and cut about half of it. 
So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's uh, on the cutting room floor. One of the things that's not on the cutting room floor and I think is really interesting in terms of the the development of advertising and the attention merchants is um, uh, one way to grab somebody's attention immediately and without their uh, permission is to show them a startling image. Mm -hmm. And the place where this was absolutely pioneered was in Paris with the posters. Yeah. Talk about those posters. Sure. So uh, many people may have seen these posters, the late 19th century uh, advertising posters invented uh, in Paris. They're very beautiful. Um, You know, they are often for Moulin Rouge or various drinks you've heard of. And what they pioneered, as you said, was this involuntary attention capture. Um, They usually have broad fields of color, a sense of motion, scantily clad women, uh, something exciting going on. Uh, like some of the uh, Toulouse La Treks are, are, are just impossible to look away from. And I think they are literally impossible in the sense that they activate parts of the brain that respond involuntarily. You know, we sometimes choose what we pay attention to. You can, you know, decide, okay, I'm going to think about the feeling in my foot or something. A lot of our attention is involuntarily uh, uh, triggered by the kind of things I've talked about, uh, images of monsters or, or sexual uh, targets or um, loud noises, bright colors, those grab us. And those have always been important in the intention harvest. Scandally clad women playing rock and roll with monsters on stage. <laughs> You've got, got a, 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 full, a full house there. It's enjoyable sometimes <laughs> to look through old posters. I mean, yeah, well, uh, yeah, look at rock and roll albums or like <laughs> Iron Maiden. I mean, you ever think about Iron Maiden's uh, covers? Like they're not, you can't look away from them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. true. You uh-huh. might you might want to. You might think, I've heard that music. I don't yeah, like symbols that. of death, skulls, <laughs> those also uh, immediately grab your attention. Uh, to look through like an old book of, of uh, advertising posters or propaganda posters are also very effective. They, mm-hmm. they just, you cannot not look at them. They, they grab you. And I say I'm saying that's partially involuntary. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, intimately, intimately tied to the history of attention study and capture is technology. Mm. And one of the first big technological leaps to be gobbled up by the world of the attention merchants was radio. And it, but it was a big uh, experiment, and they were really worried about it until it started to rule the world. So radio was. Originally, 1920s, seen as sort of a pure medium, one that no one thought should be contaminated with advertising, uh, you know, clatter. There was a, a strong movement to keep it non-commercial. It was a little bit like the internet in the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, radio in the 1920s. Everyone thought, oh, you know, this is this very pure thing. And so the first advertising was relatively subtle, and radio did. Um, kind of keep its non-commercial aspect until the late 1920s. And the first really big radio show that was a hit show, kind of like a program, like the, the ancestor of the sitcom, of the soap opera, and so many other uh, things, and the show that brought advertising to people's homes was the show Amos and Andy, which many people have uh, probably forgotten. It featured uh, two white men um, talking in Negro voices. Sometimes they put on blackface. Uh, for their public appearances. And uh, they were telling this ongoing story. It's 7 o'clock every day. 
about um, the two black gentlemen who had arrived in Harlem and were confused and befuddled by modern life, basically, and people thought it was hilarious. I think you listen to it now, it's unspeakably racist. It's very hard to listen to. <laughs> people liked it. it. It pioneered a lot of things. For one thing, that idea that every day people would listen to it uh, for a, at a set time uh, was in some ways the invention of prime time. Right, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah and I, I like that idea. Prime time gets invented by Amos and Andy. Yeah, they, they invent, uh, and, and the whole, you know, it's sort of must-listen radio, must-see TV. People are all across the country sitting and listening to the show at the exact time every day in a, a kind of ritualistic-like fashion, somewhat recalling organized religion, uh, except for its comedy. And this idea that a program you watch and it's a serial and it you know keeps going and, and the plot develops uh, uh, inspires a lot of other forms of, of, of entertainment. Uh, well, let me back up on that. So they, they Amos and Andy were a hit. People thought they were so funny. They came up with another show, The Goldbergs, which was about Jews. There was a later show about Irish people. So <laughs> they went the, through the whole racist spectrum. <laughs> yeah. So you know the early um, <laughs> the capture of American attention by radio was. Uh, Based on the Protestant majority's perceived uh, perception that black blacks and Jewish people are hilarious, uh, it's actually not something that really goes away. If you go through like American television <laughs> into the seventies, eighties, you know, like Seinfeld's kind of about Jewish people, the uh, you know different strokes, the Jeffersons. It's like okay, what happens? I mean, the Jeffersons. Like, what happens if you put black people in a rich neighborhood? It's like it's actually Amos and Andy. Uh, like these sort of formulas. If, if you know, start to look at television at all, it's like there's five shows, <laughs> television or, or radio, and they do them over and over and over again. Uh, you know, what struck me too is what you said is that what Amos and Andy marked was one of the many unspoken changes in the deal. Mm-hmm. Up to up to Amos Sandy, if you want if you were to be confronted by advertising, you actually had to go out or you had to open up a newspaper. There was some kind of effort involved. Now all of a sudden, and it, it generally involved going out of the house. Now all of a sudden, it's in your house. It's part. It's instituted as part of your life, and that's a big change. That's not. That's not uh, easily. Not mentioned often, I guess. No, I, I agree. It's a a theme of this book, and one of the things I've uh, trying to to trace is the erosion of zones of the personal, mm-hmm. the non-commercial, the sacred. Their infiltration, essentially by commercial media and advertising, step by step by step. And I, I, one of the big ones is the home. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time, in fact, in the twenties. People said, well, you can't have advertising on radio because the home is a sacred space. No one's going to accept advertising there, and uh, it would be wrong to do that. Later on, you, you have uh, a- advertising come even more effectively into the home with, with the television. Moving much closer to our times, we uh, have the social sphere. Um, our friends and our acquaintances um, become commercial, part of advertising, social media, and, and Facebook. And, you know, we now carry just right on our own bodies, which is obviously ours. You couldn't have anything more personal. We carry phones, which are also advertising platforms and are commercial entities. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, there's been this erosion of, of these spaces. Um, I talked about schools earlier. There's uh, been an 
recent effort to have more advertising in state parks and, and some federal parks um, based on the idea, well, you know, a million people are looking at, uh, you know, Mount Rushmore, Yosemite <laughs> Valley, like, wait a second. <laughs> it's all these eyeballs. We've got to do that. That's an uncommercialized activity. And we've accepted this kind of norm where if there is a tension, well, someone should be making money from it. Uh, otherwise, it's wasted. But I think that norm is in complete tension with the idea that we need some spaces that are our own where we decide who we are as as, as people or as, a, as, as families, and you're kind of buffeted from the outside world. And I think we've surrendered a lot of that, and that's something I'm concerned about. I think that that comes across uh, quite startlingly clearly in the book. And when you were talking about radio in the house, what it made me think was that the people who were certainly willing to sit and listen to Amos and Andy in the house will probably not be so keen on putting up paintings next to the painting of their dear mother of whatever was being advertised on Amos and Andy. As would we. We wouldn't, I mean, nobody, for example, nobody wants to, or very few people want to drive a car that's festooned with advertisements, although right. you'll see them now and again. Uh, you know, there's a sort of subtlety in how these things happen. It really is an erosion process. Mm-hmm. So Amos and Andy, uh, in the early days, uh, just said, Amos and Andy, presented by Pepsodent tooth- the Toothpaste, uh, visit your dentist twice a year. So they had sort of a public service announcement, and they just mentioned the toothpaste. But as time goes on, they, they turn more into more like what we would consider advertising in the home, but they just kind of just, you know, quietly turn up the dial. And I, may, maybe I'll read what they what they later end up doing. That, sure, yeah. that'd be great. So originally, Pepsodent Toothpaste just said, uh, Pepsodent Toothpaste, visit your dentist twice a year. That was it. And then uh, within a few years, it had become, as we have told you repeatedly, Pepsodent Toothpaste today contains a new and different cleansing and polishing material. We want to emphasize the fact that this cleansing and polishing material used in Pepsodent toothpaste is contained in no other toothpaste. That is very important. It is important to us because Pepsodent Laboratory spent 11 years developing this remarkable material. It is important to the public because no other cleansing and polishing material removes film from teeth as effectively as does this new discovery. What's more, this new material is twice as soft as that commonly used in toothpastes. Therefore, it gives greater safety greater protection to lovely teeth. Use Pepsodent toothpaste twice a day. See your dentist at least twice a year. So they started to add a lot more into there. Um, <laughs> and a lot of that was complete hooey, too, in well, terms yeah. of what they're saying about the ingredient. Oh, no, there was nothing at all backing it. You know, this is before fluoride or anything like that. That This is, uh, you know, this, this, is the, this is the old days. Might have been sand or ground glass. <laughs> there, maybe I'll read you, and maybe you can use this, uh, for the Listerine segment. Edna's case was really a pathetic one. Like every woman, her primary ambition was to marry. Most of the girls Versette were married, or about to be. Yet no one possessed more grace or charm or loveliness than she. And as her birthdays crept gradually towards that tragic 30 mark, marriage seemed farther from her life than ever. That's the insidious thing about haliotosis, unpleasant breath. You yourself rarely know when you have it. And even your closest friends won't tell you. It's pretty intense. <laughs> Makes me wonder myself, like, whoa, maybe I should. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It, some it, Listerine, yeah. I, that's, uh, I think, uh, again, 
there are so many interesting uh, themes that emerge from, from this story that you tell us. And the power of story and information mm -hmm. itself is a really powerful theme in this book because obviously the advertisers from early on were able to use that long arc of Amos and Andy, a never-ending shaggy dog story, and then to keep propping up uh, the advertising all the way through. And also in terms of creating a character ethel she has she's edna 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 yes she's poor little edna <laughs> poor yeah. little edna you know you've got a whole story in there and those are ways just ways to sink the hook even deeper in our consciousness right you know i think sometimes people in our generation think oh you know they were suckers back then we're we're smarter now but you read the old ads they're very effective i right. mean also the the 50s some of the characters who were invented you know they've never been surpassed the marlboro man Oh yeah, the, I love the these yeah. iconic characters. And it was the, was it the same guy who created uh, Tony the Tiger yes. and the Marlboro Man and, and the Jolly Green Giant, and the Jolly Green Giant, who he transformed from a, a sort of terrifying ogre-like figure into this more beneficent god-like character who just oversees. You know, the Jolly Green guy doesn't really intervene; <laughs> yeah. he just kind of stands there, like yeah. steady, <laughs> says "ho ho ho." Now and then. I think they're getting ready to bring him back as a computer-generated effect, and he's going to be a little more interventionist right. than what I've seen in these advertisements. You know, at the risk of blasphemy, I do notice, I don't really say this in the book, but um, there is a difference between how the Protestants and Catholic advertising men do their get to their business. Really? That, yes. what, what is that difference? Uh, the, the Cloud Hopkins is sort of the classic Protestant, mm -hmm. and it uh, his pitches. Uh, and he's an Eastern evangelical figure, um, are about the promise, the, the 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 hard sell, the like, things are not good for you, but uh, I have a promise that will solve all your problems and give you eternal life or something along those lines. So it very, very much the like, what I was somewhat talking about earlier, what are your, how are you suffering? What are your great fears and uh, desires? And how can my product be a sort of deliverance for you? Mm -hmm. So very, very transactional in a weird way. Um, the Catholic, uh, now maybe it's coincidence, I don't know, but the ad men who happen to be Catholic are the masters of icon iconography. <laughs> they, they, they invent the great brands, the great uh, trusted figures, the Marlboro men, the, you know, the, um, the Cadillac brand, Dodge, um, you know, these things that you, Coca-Cola, these things you're supposed to trust in and believe in well, in a very different way. Not because they're doing something for you, because they are. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think it's fascinating. That uh, is a fascinating. Yeah. And, and that, too, brings up the way that advertising has, has um, in a sense, entered our cultural DNA and replicated itself to replace the religious impulses. We're becoming a less religious nation, and our our passions, as it were, are directed more and more towards the things we buy and the things we own and the way we use them. those yeah. things to define ourselves. Yes. I mean, the subtext of this book uh, is, it could be subtitled, How uh, Government and Commerce uh, Beat out religion in the game for you know our minds, because no, I, I that's think true. That, that's exactly that, that is, it. That is the, that is the long plot of this book, is that the only is that religious religion had us or, mm -hmm. or family maybe family and religion 
sort of had people's time and attention. In fact, they were the only ones who cared about us. And over the 20th century, um, uh, commerce, government first, and then commerce to the fullest extent um, won out that battle for the public mind. They discovered they could productize it yes, and exploit right. it. Uh, I think as technology ramped up, uh, we're now in an age, you do a great job of talking about the different screens. The third, So talk mm-hmm. about the third screen and the fourth screen because we have, right. we had the, the second screen was TV. The TV. first was the movies. Yeah. The second was TV. Uh, talk about the third and fourth screen and how those played out. Well, since you're interested in this religious side, I will tell you the zeroth mm-hmm. screen, the first meaning of the word screen, referred to the barrier between um, the priests in a Catholic church and, and, the, uh, and the audience. Wow, that's and so... Yeah, I, sometimes in an old church, uh, you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll see that between the nave mm-hmm. and the flock, mm-hmm. there is this screen. And that was the, worst, the first use of the word screen referred to that architectural feature. Wow. So that's uh, just a little, since you seem to be interested in that kind of stuff. Well, that, that, yeah. that maps out perfectly through the imagery of the book. Right. And then you have the, the, the uh, movie screen. Then you have the television screen. Uh, third screen is one which we all spend a lot of time with, the computer screen. This is stuff I took out of the book, but uh, its invention is associated with the development of uh, anti-nuclear attack technologies in the government. Oh, uh, the, sure. er- the early warning systems, uh, NORAD, i, I got, I got to make sure I get it right, but the early warning systems for nuclear attack, uh, in order to have effective visualization of attacks from the Soviet Union, uh, they began to build better and better screens, including quite large screens, to to defend against attack. Uh, that's a that's another a story. I think the idea, if you talk to someone in the seventies, who had one of these early terminals, mm-hmm. you know, flashing, uh, even in the eighties, the idea that this would be an advertising medium <laughs> at some point just seemed preposterous. Like, how could that possibly be? You know, it was so utilitarian. Uh, and yet it became uh, ultimately a competitor to television. Uh, this is, has a lot to do with the rise of AOL and other online networks. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, video games uh, making computers entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a big moment in our history is when computers became entertainment products and social products. The fourth screen, did you, did you want to hear about the yes. fourth screen? Fourth screen, of course, is the, the one we carry in our body. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> first appeared in, on the BlackBerry. I have this thing in the book where I say, you know, all around the world there was a small group of people either working for the federal government or or uh, uh, corporations who started uh, pulling out these little things and tapping wildly with their thumbs. People thought they looked weird and <laughs> they did not realize they were foreseeing a future version of themselves. <laughs> you know, we all became that. Yeah. Do you remember that? And there was a point where people oh, with yeah. blackberries looked really weird and like, what the hell's with that? Yeah, I remember that because I worked in the stock market. So oh, yeah. some, some of those people had that stuff. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's kind of a weird looking way to, to be. But that, that, you know, that's all of us. Uh, we all have that itch. Uh, now, it, I have to ask you. Sure. W- Back in the 80s, I was on something called Usenet. I spent a lot oh, of time. Yeah. I worked for a company called Quotron. Okay. And they were on the prototypical, the proto-logical internet right. because it's distributing stock quotes. Right. So I had access to Usenet. And one of the most interesting things about Usenet was they had these alt groups. Yes. Other groups 
had to be formed by a lot of negotiation. Alt groups, somebody could just form it. And one of the groups that was formed was uh, called Alt.Biff. I don't know if you remember Biff. Uh, he was this guy who would type all of his messages in totally annoying capital letters. <laughs> He's the first guy to do this. Wow. And one of the things he eventually he said eventually was that soon there will be a news group for every human on the planet, which <laughs> I think has that's what they call Facebook. Right. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that you can see these kind of <clears throat> attention transformed from just being language, from mm -hmm. verbiage, the mm -hmm. stories, to now with Facebook, we can tell our stories right. so much easier with all of the all the graphics. Talk about the way in which Facebook and Twitter are now like um, chopping our attention and also redirecting it to stuff that's actually just not real. Sure. No, that's uh, no, there's a lot in there. Well, I missed out on Biff, although I did watch Back to the Future, <laughs> especially Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah, which, which was... predicts that Biff will take over the world. <laughs> it's <a> fascinating, <laughs> and that the Cubs would win the World Series. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit too unsettling. I've, we got to go talk to Zemeckis about this. Yeah, well, they, they, he he nailed it. Um, well, the, I think Biff was right. One of um, the th many themes in this book, or one of the the things you see over the span of history is different lures to grab people's attention. We've already talked about, you know, bright colors, the promise of deliverance from suffering, you know, an association with brands, all these sort of lures. But a long time what people knew and understood is some of the most effective lures, the things that people really pay attention to, are themselves and their friends. <laughs> Especially themselves. I mean, give people, give, show someone a photograph of a crowd with them in it, and they will stare at themselves, you know, and be like, hmm, how did I look in that photo? Mm -hmm. So I think um, the greatest crowning success, uh, maybe Biff was part of this, but the crowning success of social media is not only people looking at their friends, but harvesting the desire to stare at yourself at some level. <laughs> And when you realize how people use social media, most of the time they're staring at themselves or how people are reacting to themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and they go on and see how their friends are. It's another thing. We're interested in, in friends and family. But you, with the success of social media in the, in the 2000s, you actually realize that another frontier had been breached. That is the, the personal, the social mm -hmm. side. And uh, now that has taken on an you know, enormous amount of, of our attention, vying with every other uh, form of, of media. I think you had some more. You wanted to ask about other things, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. Uh, one of the things you talk about, and I think uh, one of the really interesting discussions you have, is uh, the difference <clears throat> that was developed early in the advertising world between branding and advertising. Right. And I think that that's a, that's a subtle but a very important difference to understand. Yeah, no, I think I was uh, talking about that uh, a little before mm -hmm. um, with some of the... <laughs> Cadillac. Speculation about Catholics and, and uh, Protestant uh, advertising mm -hmm. men. A little bit blasphemous, so I apologize to listeners. Um, a, a little rough. But the basic idea of advertising is to persuade. You know, my product is cheaper or better or does this for you. Branding doesn't so much seek to persuade as to convert. You don't drive a Harley-Davidson because you think it's the fastest 
motorcycle or is the cheapest. It's because it is part of your identity. Or, you know, Cadillac, to drive a Cadillac, especially early in the century, is to make yourself a certain kind of person. So it's an association. Coca-Cola, the most successful brand in history, somehow made drinking of it almost a patriotic act, an act of belonging, part of being American. Who knows why? It's just a beverage, <laughs> brown beverage. <laughs> but the, 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 icon, the icon made it, uh, there was a phrase for Coke. It was the brand beyond competition. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, it wasn't that Coke was cheaper or better. In fact, it wasn't. It was just there was no other choice. And that, that's the genius of branding. One of the things about this book is you give us all sorts of details about stuff uh, that we just probably never knew. And I think most of us never knew about PRISM, P-R-I-Z-M. <laughs> yeah. And this is a really fascinating uh, development that keyed off the, the first idea of the zones of information for postage, What uh, zip codes. Zip codes, yes. yes. Zip codes were actually controversial at their invention. Mm-hmm. People said, oh, these zip codes are going to be used to invade our privacy. Wow. It's one of these <laughs> things. Okay. Um, yeah, so PRISM was one of the first uh, sophisticated targeted marketing systems. You know, advertising initially was just one message for everyone. Uh, they then, uh, in the 20s, began targeting women. In the 50s, there was some targeting of subgroups like uh, African Americans. They had Pepsi had a Negro marketing department or something like that. Uh, but in the 70s, um, uh, reacting, I think, somewhat to the idea of the counterculture that America is a much more diverse place than anyone realized. It's uh, uh, not just one kind of homogeneous mass of, of white people. There began to be um, uh, marketing targeted at individual neighborhoods, zip codes. This um, PRISM company came up with lists or associations of who lived in each kind of neighborhood. Some were like bohemian neighborhoods, some were like you know, rich neighborhoods, and they gave them all, all names. A man named Jonathan Robin uh, pioneered this idea of uh, geodemography, as he called it. And his basic idea is, well, you know, if you can figure out who lives in an area, you can settle them. And he gave them these areas, evocative names like Bohemian Mix, Shotgun and Pickups, Young Suburbia, <laughs> um, Young Influentials. Uh, they're, they're still used, uh, these, these titles. They're often used in politics, actually. Oh, yeah. No, it sounds like they would. Individual yeah. groups, uh, Gold Coast and, and that kind of thing. Fur and station wagons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you talk about the what you call the celebrity industrial complex? This is a really fascinating notion that it, it's just created out of whole cloth. Well, yeah, it's I, I associate that with uh, with uh, People magazine in the nineteen seventies. Uh, you know, celebrity uh, in since the early part of twentieth century had become um, important for the sale of movies and so forth. And, you know, actors started becoming famous. But at some point, someone realized, uh, frankly, Time, Inc. realized, that they could make a magazine or have a product just centered on celebrities themselves and nothing else. You know, magazines were always about sports, and maybe they'd have stars in there. But just only focusing on celebrity as its own industry was a byproduct of the 70s. It also dovetails with the sense that celebrities were becoming increasingly important to these attentional contests that if you wanted to get attention for anything, you needed a celebrity. 
And, um, you know, that's certainly become, even, if anything, much more dramatically true in our times. Uh, the more competitive the attention uh, markets get, the more celebrities become important. And the more celebrities uh, become important, the lower the internet can go. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and you talk about the rise of clickbait and uh, BuzzFeed. I and, and uh, give you, I think, speak quite glowingly about Huffington Post and their ability to like scrape the bottom of the barrel and, and get you by the by the eyeballs. I don't know if glowingly would be the word I'd <laughs> use. Um, there's a fellow who's. Uh, in the book, who's behind a lot of this? He's a really interesting guy, Jonah Peretti, the founder of oh, BuzzFeed yeah. and, and and of the Huffington Post. I love the the uh, characters in this book, and he's one of the best, I think. It's kind of a jokester figure, you know. He's a sense of humor. He uh, his first kind of stunt was he wrote to Nike, and he that they had customized shoes available on the web, and he wanted shoes that said "Sweatshop" on them. They said no. He went back and forth. You know, he did the stunt, and then it went viral. Uh, he kind of he didn't invent virality, but he was one of the first people to want to systematize virality, to make it happen on demand, where you you know figure out what kind of content spreads like a bad cold. Uh, and actually, that led in the end to the BuzzFeed laboratories, and to a kind of model clickbait based on nothing else than trying to get people to click and spread content. Now, you know, I. I have some appreciation for the the genius of it in a way, and it was a different way of spreading information. Um, I can't say it was great for the web in the long term. No, it's uh, terrible. Terrible because <laughs> it kind of you know reduced everything. I mean, I think it was one thing when it was oh this is cool, things are going viral. When that becomes the only way of disseminating information, it, it does uh, lower us to a, a level where I don't know does it make people click or not, and I, it's. Uh, you know, people used to say the competition for ratings was undignified in the 50s. The competition for clicks in our time makes ratings look dignified in comparison. I think that in this book, you do a really nice job of giving us a, a relatively dispassionate history of, of this. And then in your final words, in your afterword, you kind of uh, sum up and take us where you think we've been. And I think that there's a morality to this book that's not explicit, but the reader is, you can't really miss it. So I want to talk about that writing a book that's informed by morality but doesn't uh, promulgate it, so to speak. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I... Um... I guess I'm interested in how we live <laughs> and, uh, you know, us our, our living our, our best lives. And the environment we live in, I think, has a lot to do with that. We live in what I call a built attentional environment. We already live in a built physical environment, mm -hmm. but, our, our, you know, our moment to moment is not like it was when we lived in the jungle or in the desert. It's very different. And I think, therefore, if you want to have a good life experience, uh, it takes a lot of self-control and self-programming to, to live the kind of life you want to. And I guess that's all I'm saying with this book. It's like, be aware that we live in a casino, <laughs> an attentional casino. And, you know, if you go over and put one bet down, you, you're going you're gonna to get sucked in. I, I have Part of why I wrote this book was that experience of 
you know, going to write one email and suddenly watching three hours go by and not knowing what had happened and, and realizing, you know, there's, there's something here that is in some ways perhaps taking away for how we'd like to live. I think I say in the book, uh, we're in danger of living lives that are not really ours. And I call in the end for a kind of reconstruction, reclamation of ourselves and of, of spaces where you block out the outside world, spaces devoted to either um, uh, your family or friends or things that um, matter to you. And, and above all, constructing your life um, in the knowledge that uh, your attention is valuable and that your life at the end of your life will have been how you have spent your attention. And so that, that's some of what I uh, try to bring forward. Uh, I think that it harkens back a bit to your previous book, The Master Switch, in that you suggest that we all have to pay attention and realize that we have control of our own master switches. We can control our attention should we so desire. And it, it's not easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> in fact, I, I, it's so not easy that I, what I, I, I think one of the major themes of the book is not to overestimate yourself, mm. not to be overconfident in your own ability to detect propaganda or, you know, control yourself. But you need to create pretty hard lines. Like, I don't know, on weekends I don't use my computer or something. Or, you know, I spend my evenings with my family or my friends um, in person. And that's how I'm going to do it. Um, do you have hard rules in your life? Definitely, definitely, oh, yeah. yes. I have uh, many of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, don't work after certain times. I have two daughters, and they're kind of a secret weapon when it comes to um, attention because they are very sensitive be of attention being uh, devoted to anything but themselves. And sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, you want to type on your phone, but I, it's not, you know, interacting with people sometimes is inconvenient in, in a way, but it, it, it feels much better and healthier. I think when we look back at our this period, I, I think the beginnings of a movement, similar to the movement to be more conscious of our diet, is beginning about how we spend our, our time, uh, how we spend our attention, frankly, and whether it's with essentially what we think of as healthier stuff or, or junk food. And um, yeah, I, I think that that's beginning. The new book by Tim Wu is The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Oh, it's been uh, terrific, and thanks for taking such a deep interest in this book. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.